right, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and we're going to do a little bit of work before we even get there. Um, if you are a person who likes to write down uh, the verses that we turn to, you're going to have to make sure and warm up your pencil today, because I got a lot of them, even more than usual. Well, I think uh, it goes without saying for many of us that have experienced life with Christ that God has a great sense of humor. Amen? In his letter to the church, James said, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Well, I am not a perfect man. Last week, we went into detail on the topic of the just witness of God's covenant people, and we discussed that the purpose of God's people was and is to proclaim God's character, and that God's rule through his law leads us in righteousness and justice. If you were here last week, you got all that. Specifically, though, we were having this discussion around the law dealing with three pieces. The first piece was cities of refuge. The second was witnesses and judgment. And then there was this third thing about property boundaries. And in the midst of that teaching, at least a couple of times, I made the very foolish statement that most of us do not have to deal with the issue of property boundaries anymore. Well, I was wrong, and a few of you after service were very loving to me to come up and remind me of that, so thank you for that. Um, When I look at this topic of of property boundaries, I think uh, the reality is I was thinking, well, we're, you know, suburbanites, and very few of us care if our fence is off a couple of inches, but it's not that way. If you're in realty, if you're in farming, right, any number of things, surveying, right, we've got some surveyors in here, any of those, uh, it definitely matters. And so... I have to repent in dust and ashes. I was wrong. Well, if it weren't enough that I needed to repent in those dust and ashes, to those of you who laughed at my incorrect statement, my wife and I, who just moved into our new house, received a communication this last week that the owner of the land next to us is going to try and subdivide the property into three spaces in order to build three houses, something we didn't know about as we were moving in. And so I just chuckled because this morning I am forced by the Lord and by you to openly admit that I have learned my lesson. And I do indeed now see that the issue of property boundaries is important. Amen? All right, there we have it. But more importantly, what it really reinforced for me is how relevant the Word of God is that even an ancient document that talks about property boundaries... Uh, is something that in 2019 we look at and we say, oh my goodness, this is still very relevant to our lives. And as we've been learning, it's not because of the surface level rule that's there or the law that's in place, but it's the principle underneath. And these principles are just as needed today as they were then. And this is so helpful for us today because as we heard in our reading a few moments ago, we are digging into and opening up a text before us which is laws concerning warfare. Now, for some of us in the room, we have been in the military or uh, we have people who we love in the military, and this is a very relevant issue for us. But for many of the rest of us, we probably would admit that we don't necessarily think of the Bible as a place to go for strategic warfare advice. I don't know how many of you in the morning open it up and think, okay, should I flank left or flank right? How do I attack, right? You don't really go to the Bible for that. So why is this here and what can we learn from it in our contemporary and largely civilian setting? Well, I believe we will gather a great deal and we will learn that we are to wage war on behalf of the Lord. And this is what uh, I'm titling the sermon today, Waging War on Behalf of the Lord. We are at war. 
It's very important to remember. So let's begin with a, a quick reminder. We've talked about this before in the past, but I want to remind us this morning that to properly interpret the Bible, we must remember that it is written in a setting of warfare. It's written in a setting of warfare. We talk all the time about the three most important things that go along with interpreting the Bible and reading the Bible are context, context, and context. It's like real estate, location, location, location. When you're reading the Bible, it's context, context, context. And so for us to interpret the Bible, we can't read it in 2019, largely civilian mentality. We have to read it as it was. And in Deuteronomy, they were about to cross over the River Jordan to go into the land to wage warfare. These were men and women standing on the the brink of violence. You can think about the troops um, in D-Day as they were about to go and, and storm the beaches. You can imagine what their hearts were like and their minds were like. If you need to, go, go watch Saving Private Ryan. People were throwing up. They were scared to death. They needed motivation. Deuteronomy is that speech on the other side of the river. And he's trying to motivate them to go to war on behalf of Yahweh. And so to properly interpret the Bible, we must remember that it is written in a setting of warfare. And this point may be something that you guys already know because we talk about it a lot in this church um, and a lot over the years, but it's so easy to dismiss in our Western postmodern culture. We are sold a story through our popular culture that if everyone could just get their way and leave everyone else alone, then there would be no violence or war. We're told that tolerance is the answer, but the problem is, is that tolerance is great until someone has a different opinion than you, and then it just doesn't work. Unfortunately, it's just not the truth. The reality of humanity is that there is always warfare. Now, some people have taken that and wrongly turned it into this rally cry to go against certain demographics or certain groups of people, and that is just as evil as evil itself, right? So we're not doing that, but we have to be realistic in understanding that evil exists. And that is why every cowboy movie has a bad guy and a good guy. Every sci-fi movie has a villain and a hero, the good force the bad force, right? The light side, the dark side. And that is why every boy that has ever grown up turned anything they could into a sword or a gun. Uh, Dallas, I think, was telling me a story about how his mom tried to take away guns, and so he and his brother chewed their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches into the shape of a gun, much to their mother's chagrin. And many of you moms, you want to get rid of violence in your children, but the reality is they are innately born to fight. At the heart of mankind, there is this knowledge that warfare exists, and we may want to eradicate it, but there is evil in the world, and standing in defense against that is righteous and good. And the question is, is behind that warfare, what is your motivation? What is your application? Is it just war? That phrase, just war, is one that many laugh at, but what we're reading in Deuteronomy today is an idea of just war. And to understand the Bible, we have to view through the lens of this question. I fear that many of us desire to suck the warfare out of the Bible and turn it into a touchy-feely manual of self-help or a statement on how I can get to heaven when I die, but that is just not the case of what the Bible was written for. We do so at our own peril. From the beginning, the Bible is a book set in the midst of war. And just to remind you of this, I want to remind you of a few themes that are throughout the Bible. The first one is the theme of cosmic warfare. And there's also exile in the midst of warfare. 
There's occupation in the midst of warfare. These are themes that happen all throughout the word of God. Let me give you some examples here. The idea of cosmic warfare. Well, there's a war going on between the kingdom of God, God most high, and the kingdom made up of all of the angelic beings and human beings that are in rebellion against him. Now, we largely like to remove this in our scientific culture, but the reality is, is that this is promised that this exists by the word of God, and many of us have been exposed to it in various capacities. We can go back to the very beginning. This is a verse I give you often, Genesis 1.28. And God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and over all the creatures in it. Those words subdue and dominion, they're warfare words. The word subdue is the word in Hebrew, kabosh. Everybody say kabosh. That just sounds like a warfare word, right? I'm going to kabosh you, right? Kabosh, it's used throughout the rest of scripture in a very warfare type mentality, okay? Um, Isaiah 27, Isaiah 27, 1, um, speaking of the future of the uh, world and the universe of the cosmos, there will come a point where God will finally have complete and full victory over the kingdom of darkness. It says, in that day, the Lord, and remember L-O-R-D in all caps means that behind it is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, that Yahweh with his hard and great strong sword will punish Leviathan, another name for the serpent or Satan himself. Uh, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. These are all images of the chaos monster that is in rebellion against Yahweh. So there's this idea of cosmic warfare throughout scripture. We also have the theme of exile that's throughout scripture. Think about this idea of two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, okay? And those of us that have stepped out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by the sacrifice and the, uh, the work of Jesus Christ, it says this about us. Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. See that? A kingdom of people led by a leader, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those in rebellion against God Most High are under his wrath. Those that have stepped into his kingdom by the work of Jesus Christ are no longer under his wrath. That wrath has been removed. Because this world has within it the adversaries of God, it is considered a different kingdom. Therefore, those who are of the Lord are considered exiles in the midst of this foreign kingdom. People that do not belong to this system, but are in the midst of it, trying to turn all people toward the true king. Peter says this in his letter, uh, his first letter. This is 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. He says, Beloved, speaking to the church, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the day when he returns to set things right. So the theme of cosmic warfare, the theme of exile, but then also the theme of occupation. Look at our reading from last week. This is from Deuteronomy 19.1. When Yahweh your God cuts off the nations, who's, uh, the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, 
That word dispossess in the Hebrew can more literally be translated uh, as occupy. And it even spells it out there in definition that that's what occupying is. The word, um, the word here means that they're going to go and they are going to stand their ground in the midst of this foreign enemy and they're going to occupy their land. Israel was to be an occupying force and the church is to be the same now today. We are exiles, but we also occupy, in a sense, the places where God has given us reign. And these are just some of the themes that speak to the overall background of warfare as the setting upon which the Bible is cast. And I could take hours and keep going, right? This is just the high points. So do you see that the Bible has warfare as the background? In the midst of this context, we see in the Bible that war is always and only seen as a religious endeavor. Only in our postmodern secular world is war seen as police work, policing the evil of the world. In the ancient Near East, warfare was always religious. One God and his people against another God and his people. Every nation state had its own God, and when two nations went to war against each other, it was their gods fighting through the medium of their followers. So look with me at, you should be in 1 Samuel 4 here. Look with me at verses 1 through 10, uh, this story that you've probably read before where the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant was taken into battle by the Israelites. It would be at the front of their procession. Now, the reason for that was because in it was reminders of the covenant relationship that Yahweh had with his people. It wasn't some powerful thing, right? Uh, the Nazis out of the Indiana Jones movie couldn't actually steal it and have it melt people's eyeballs, right? You guys remember that movie? Or am I too old? Some of you are like, yeah, okay. Raiders of the Lost Ark, you guys remember that, right? The scene where they've got the open ark and you know, demons are coming out and all that stuff. I love Indiana Jones, but that has horrible theology. Okay? Don't ever get your theology from Indiana Jones. The reality is, is that's not the point of the ark. The ark was a reminder that our God is Yahweh as they went into battle. And so Yahweh would fight on their behalf. When they started to put too much emphasis on the ark, Yahweh said, I'm going to back off and let you see how you do without me because you think you've got the control now. Well, a similar situation happens here. Look at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come uh, to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. 
So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Notice how they have no idea of anything other than a religious battle. We can see that warfare was not just about land and resources. That was part of it. But it was very much God's fighting against one another through their people and even sometimes fighting against their people if they weren't in a good enough relationship with them. Now, this is a wrong view of Yahweh. As you can see in the surrounding context, Israel by this point had lost their mind when it came to who Yahweh was and that's part of the problem. So God wasn't smiting them. God was simply saying, guys, you want to be on your own, I'll pull back. And that's why they were defeated. Now, even though our politically correct culture does not want to admit it, this is still the case. The reason Iran wants to defeat us is not because they just don't like the United States. It's because we serve a different God. And I know that this is very unpopular, but Islamic terrorism is absolutely a religious war. That's why they're going after the great Satan and the small Satan, the United States and Israel and all of our allies. It's a war against the Judeo-Christian God and his people. And the faster we realize that, the faster we'll understand how to start fighting back against it. But we never will because we're in a postmodern culture that doesn't want to admit it. We have to understand that this background of warfare exists not only in current day, but also it is the backdrop of all of the Bible. And so that's how we understand it. But not only do we understand the Bible better by understanding warfare, number two, you can write this down, to properly understand God, we must remember that he is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of hosts. Any of us that read the Bible know that this is an often used phrase for God. Just a simple word search will show you that it's used 242 times in 232 verses. Do you think it's an important name? 242 times in 232 verses. In the Hebrew, it is pronounced Adonai Tzavot or Yahweh Tzavot. It means Yahweh, the mightiest warrior, or Yahweh, the all-powerful king. Tzavot, hosts, means army. He is the Lord of the heavenly army. He's the one in charge of the hosts of heaven. He is the commander-in-chief, one who is just and righteous. The God we serve is not a powerless pushover. He's the God that overcomes his enemies victoriously. And this is what we see in the beginning of our section from today's text. Why don't you turn there with me? Go back to Deuteronomy 20. And let's read the first few verses. We've heard it all the, time, all the way through one time, and now let's go through it piece by piece and unpack it. Verse 1, it says, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for Yahweh, the Lord, your God, is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Well, we see here that God is known as the Exodus God. Long before Jesus ever showed up on the scene, the triune God was known as the Exodus God. 
the God whose Holy Spirit dwelt among his, uh, his people in a different way of the Old Testament, the God who promised the coming Savior in Jesus, the Father God, he was known as the Exodus God, the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Core to the character of the God we serve is the fact that he is the one that freed people from their enslavement to a foreign kingdom under a foreign God. Let me say that again. Core to the character of our God is the fact that he is the one that freed the people from enslavement to a foreign kingdom under a foreign God. And this is why the Exodus story is infused with the plagues, which are the pictures of Yahweh being victorious over the gods of Egypt. And when he freed them, he saved them through victory in warfare. The phrase translated there at the end of verse 4, to give you the victory, is yasha in Hebrew. It means to rescue or to save. It is literally rendered to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Long before Jesus ever showed up, Yahweh was known as the Savior God. And God is only the Savior in this sense because he is also the Lord of hosts, victorious over the armies of darkness. And after they were freed from oppression, Moses led the people out into the wilderness and watched the armies of Egypt be destroyed. And he sang a song. And this is part of it from Exodus 15. This is Exodus 15, 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. I don't think you can get more pointed than that. Yahweh is a man of war. Let's take that and internalize that a bit into who our God is. I think oftentimes we go from one end of the pendulum swing to the other. Well, our God is so cool because he's this kind, compassionate hippie in a toga and Birkenstocks, man. He kind of floated on the ground, sunken eyes, right? He was really sweet to everybody. He was also the guy that flipped the temple tables when he saw that people were being oppressed. He was also the one that called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He was also the one that led his armies into battle against Egypt in the Exodus. Our God is a man of war, and we have to remember that. He is also a God, as we've looked at in Exodus many times, of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, steadfast in love. We have to have a balanced view of who our God is in order to understand him. Otherwise, I fear that we could drift in a direction that causes him to succumb to our views of who he is, and that is not the proper place we should have our God. He should be the one seated on the throne telling us, not the other way around. And it was especially in warfare that the people of God and those that represented him were supposed to exhibit the Lord's character. If we and the people of God in general are an army of the Lord, does it not follow then that the primary time that we should show the character of God is in the midst of warfare? And as we looked at last week, the laws of the Lord are meant to lead the people in justice, even in warfare. And so we see this. You can write this down. This is my third point. It is especially in the midst of warfare that we must exhibit the Lord's character. It is especially in the midst of warfare that we must exhibit the Lord's character. 
Let's go through and see these laws one by one, and you'll see what I mean. And to read these well, we have to read them in the context of the day, not in 2019 context, but in the context of the day. Take a look there at verse 5. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. Right off the bat, what we see is we see an immense mercy shown by God. Part of the people of God displaying the power of God is that they do not follow the same view of power that the world does. They don't follow the view of more troops, more chariots, bigger stick. We see in the story of the judge named Gideon fighting against the Moabites that God whittles down his army to be the bare minimum so that in the victory, God would get the glory. We see the same thing when Jonathan, the son of Saul, takes down the enemy encampment and says that God will save by many or by few. Church, never ever fear that you look around and you see the church shrinking. The reality of the statistics are that the majority of the church is made up of people who are cultural Christians or apathetic Christians who may not even have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus did not say that the way is wide for Christians. He said the way is narrow and few are there that find it because it is difficult. Over my years as a Christian, I have seen so many people that are quick to voice that they're a Christian, but the second any difficulty comes or a hard passage to teach, they drift away into nothingness. Christians endure. And the reality is, is that we don't need to be afraid, even if the church in the United States whittles down to one or 2%, because the reality is, is that God is more powerful than the statistics. And if we endure in his power, then we will be doing what we're supposed to. God can save by many or by few. And so in this section of Deuteronomy, God follows suit and does not worry about having the biggest, most impressive army. He shows instead that he values the community and family more than he does worldly views of power and prestige. You build a house, go enjoy it. You planted a vineyard and haven't eaten its fruit, go home, eat its fruit. You're betrothed to a wife, you're engaged. Why would you be here? Go be with her. In Deuteronomy 24, we'll see that it states a very small law there that a man who has been married should take at least a year off from war to focus on making his wife happy. And if the soldier is faint-hearted, well, he says he should go home. Can you imagine if these were rules in the draft of the Vietnam War? This is not how we operate in the world. We want a bigger war machine. We want the war machine to grow out of greed and out of a feeling that if we have more nuclear warheads than the next guy, then maybe we'll be able to blow them up first, which is just pure lunacy. It's ridiculous. 
I've met so many Christians who play the balance between should I get a bigger gun to protect my home or should I rely on the Lord? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you today. That's a personal question. But the reality is, is you need the Lord. If you want to get a gun, go for it. That's your right. But don't put all your power into that sidearm. We need to be people that trust the Lord. All of these were curses of what's called futility, that the ancient Near East culture, they would curse one another with these things, that you die in battle before you were able to experience them. But God does not curse his people. God blesses them. And all of these show the compassionate, merciful heart of God. He is not an overbearing taskmaster. He's a benevolent God who loves his people and shows them mercy in their situation. Let's keep going there. Look at verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. Now we read the word plunder and we immediately picture the Israelites as pirates. But the reality is, is words matter. We read this and we think, this sounds terrible. This doesn't sound like a merciful God. But remember that these laws may seem horrific to us, but in comparison to the laws of the other armies of the day, it shows incredible restraint. And notice that it begins with offering peace. The Israelites weren't supposed to go in ready for vengeance. Rather, they were supposed to use the least amount of force possible to accomplish their mission of occupation. In a day in which armies were known for cutting off heads and putting them on lances outside the city, for putting hooks into the noses of their slaves and dragging them naked over hundreds or thousands of miles back to their kingdoms, this is incredibly humanitarian. It was the norm that soldiers were paid through the bounty that they collected after the victory, but the way they operated with it and how they went about it did not matter in other cultures. Here it did, as we'll see in a little bit. God is very particular about how the people who were taken captive were to be treated. We may not view this as humanitarian, but guys, we have the Geneva Convention. And remember that the Geneva Convention, it came out of this. It came out of just warfare, out of the word of God. That there is a way to do warfare that minimizes as much collateral damage as possible. Let's take a look at verse 16. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. In this case, God is clear that he will not stand the horrific nature of the Canaanites' worship practices. You guys may not remember it, but a while back we talked about this in great detail. If you're a person who's always struggled with how Christians can say that this is godly when it says to destroy a people, go back and listen to the teachings that I did there in Deuteronomy 12. But I'll just remind you of one verse. This is out of Deuteronomy 12, 31. It says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, referring to their practices. 
For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. For some reason, the particular worship of the Canaanite people was so disgusting to God. And if you go back and listen to that sermon, you'll be reminded that God gave them 400 years to repent, multiple generations, and they only got worse. And in reality, what they were doing was things like this. They would take their newborn babies and they would place them on red hot uh, statues that they would light incandescently. And then they would literally fry their children on these statues statues as a way of worship to their gods. To bless their home as they were building it, they would take their live children and place them in the foundation of the cornerstone and build the house around it, hearing the screams of their child in order to bless their home. These were a vile people that were given hundreds of years to repent. So we're quick to say God is wrong and unjust in doing this, but guys, for that God to be wrong, to go and destroy that, would be to call us wrong for wanting to go after the Nazis for committing genocide against the Jews. It was a vile practice, and therefore we went to war with them partially for that. You see, when injustice is happening, a good and just God deals with it. And the reality is, is that's what we're seeing here. And so we can say that this is wrong and unjust, but in context, it actually is very just. Put succinctly, the gods that these people groups worshipped required such depraved practices that it was actually good and just for God to destroy their worship. And again, in the ancient Near East, this kind of restraint and governed way of looking at how to conduct warfare in a just way, depending upon who your enemy was, this was unheard of. But in doing so, the people of Israel were representing the fact that the Hebrew God, Yahweh, was a far different God. Well, look with me at Deuteronomy 20, 19. And the fun continues. Let's take a look here. Deuteronomy 19. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Now, you guys know me. I, I kind of like to uh, do a little bit of shock and awe every once in a while. And so when I'm talking to my very liberal friends, I will use certain verses out of the Bible. And when I'm talking to my very conservative friends, I'll use other verses out of the Bible to try and just, you know, debate against them. This is one I love to use for my conservative friends who think, oh, it's, it's all going to be remade anyway and burn. Let's just cut everything down. Well, the reality is, is God's a tree hugger. I'm sorry. He absolutely is. God is about the environment. And as Christians, we have to realize that God cares about how we steward the gift he's given us. As a dad, imagine if I walk out on Christmas morning and I say to my children, I've gotten you all new bikes. I hope that you treat them well. And they go, thanks, dad. We're so thankful for this. And they take the bikes outside and they get a, they get a sledgehammer and some propane torches and they start frying up the bikes and knocking the crud out of them. And, and I look at them and I say, what are you doing? Well, we're just, we're using them how we think it's appropriate. Do you think I'll feel like they're stewarding them well as a father? No. So guys, things as simple as recycling and being environmentally good stewards, like these are Christian things. They are not secular things. The reality is, is God cares about what we do with his environment. And back in these days, cities would have tall walls, and so the attacking army would use dirt and rocks and vegetation to build up a siege ramp. 
This is on the side of Masada. It was a plateau where the Roman armies had to build this over the course of months, that kind of slope that looks like a good ski slope there. Um, that was a, a straight ramp that they would use to take their battering rams and a number, number of other things up and their entire army. So they would build these siege ramps that angled up to the tops of the wall. And when finished, they could go up to the siege ramp and attack the city and destroy the city. We have a great deal of evidence, archaeological and hieroglyphic, that this occurred all the time. But long before there was concern about environmental impact studies, God was concerned about the justice surrounding the unchecked cutting down of trees. Now, I know that I sound like I'm a big tree hugger here. If you, if you know, that, know me, you know that that's probably not the case. I'm the guy that goes outside and I'm like, ugh, bugs. I went back in, air conditioning, right? Okay, I know some of you are big time outdoors people. I'm just not. The reality is, is that God loves his environment that he's created. And even more important than that, remember that fruit trees were God's original plan of provision for his people in the garden. And it is through these that God often provided for the poorest among his people. Even in the midst of warfare, God is concerned that if Israel were to just cut down and wipe out all the trees for military purposes, that the oppressed and poor of the land and those that remained after the siege would not have food to eat. Guys, this is the God you serve. He's an amazing God. He's a God unlike any other false God that's out there. And in the ancient Near East, this was not only unheard of, this was insane. Scorched earth was and is an oft-used military tactic. For those of you old enough to remember, or maybe you've seen it in history books, during the Vietnam War, we used napalm and other defoliants to destroy forestation so that there was no place for the Viet Cong to hide. We scorched the earth, and even today, decades later, it's still recovering. In Desert Storm, Saddam Hussein lit the oil fields on fire as he was retreating from Kuwait. It is a well-known tactic to scorch the earth of your enemies. The Romans salted the entire land of Israel after cutting down the trees to kill as much vegetation as possible. But the God of the Bible is a God of justice, a God that in every time and place and culture raises the bar of what justice is against the predominant culture of the day so that the surrounding groups can see his character of justice and righteousness. We read these and we pass over them quickly to get through Deuteronomy, but we miss so much beauty that Yahweh is an amazingly compassionate and just God. Well, let's look at one more here, and this one will really throw us for a loop. Take a look at 21, verse 10. You can get all your rotten fruit ready to throw at me uh, when I expose this text here. When you go out to war against your enemies, this is 21.10, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month, which by Hebrew tradition would have meant she would have put on sackcloth, kind of like a potato sack in order to mourn and she would have been covered in dust and ashes. And after that, uh, the Israelite soldier may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Now, this is possibly the hardest for us to read because on the surface, it is horrific. We think, what on earth? taking a woman captive, shaving her head and cutting her nails. But again, 
If we go back in time to the culture of the day, how were women treated? They were taken as property. And invading armies raped women at any point they wanted. It was part of how they showed their power. And this law requires immense restraint and gives women a position of honor and gives them power that was not found in other cultures of the day. So if an Israelite soldier saw a woman that he wanted, he would take her captive, yes. And that sounds like the rest of the cultures around them, but that is where the similarities stop. First, he would take her into his house so she was to be taken care of. He was to show her hospitality. Then she would shave her head, cut her nails, and change out of the clothes in which she was captured and put on sackcloth and cover herself in dust and ashes. All of these were not meant to dishonor her, but as hard as it is to understand, it is the protection of God to cover that woman. By removing these predominantly feminine characteristics, God was causing the Israelite man to explore whether he had taken her for purposes of lusting over her or whether he was truly desiring to care for her as a wife. To put it in contemporary terms, imagine if Tinder put in place a month-long requirement where you had to meet, show yourself the ugliest possible way you could, and you couldn't touch each other for at least a month. No one would want to date. I'm serious. You'd have to know if you actually liked the person rather than the, the idea of having sex with them. Now, when we put it in those ways, we think, well, well that actually kind of makes sense. It's kind of protective. Now, in our culture, we probably make the men do it. But the reality is, is either way, either way, it gives this restraint. And she was then given a mourning period of one month to mourn the family that she lost. Imagine how compassionate that is. There was no suck it up, get over it, you're part of this culture now. There was no hurry up and learn our language, hurry up and do this or that. It was, you can mourn, you can be sad. All the while, the man is to practice restraint and humane treatment. And this was for the purpose of the man to see if he truly wanted to care for her or if he was treating her as a sexual object. And before we get too haughty about this and say, oh, how terrible that was, let's think about Guantanamo. Let's think about the Japanese internment camps. Let's think about all the things that our generations have done to not be humane. By our standards today, this is inhumane, yes. But how many women who would have been harmed or abused sexually would have appreciated a command of God upon the man that harmed her to instead of practice restraint and respect for a month? Even in 2019, with our one-night stand and Tinder dating culture, this is pretty amazing. And it removes, as much as is possible in the culture of the day, the objectification of women. And that's nuts for 3,500 years ago. And if the man then decided that he was not going to pursue her as a wife, that waiting period protected her virginity so that she could still marry. Because remember that in that culture, a woman who had lost her virginity out of wedlock was looked upon as one who could never be married again, relegating her to a lifestyle of prostitution or begging. It finishes with, you shall let her go where she wants. In terms of Western culture that barely gave women the right to vote just over 100 years ago, we don't have a whole lot to say to this. 
There should be a giant hashtag of me too over this, quite honestly. This was God looking out for the best of the women that were taken captive. And yes, it is hard to wrap our minds around that because we would not do that today. But in the culture of the day, it was amazing. The God that required these laws was and is a God of justice and righteousness. Now, one commentator, Chris Wright, puts it this way. He says, without a Geneva Convention, Deuteronomy advocates humane exemptions from combat, requires prior negotiation, prefers nonviolence, limits the treatment of subject populations, allows for execution of male combatants only, demands humane and dignified treatment of female captives, and insists on ecological restraint. Brothers and sisters, the critics of the Bible may indeed mischaracterize the God of the Bible, but those who are able to interpret the Bible as it was intended are able to see that the God who leads this army is a good and just God, a God different than the systems of the world and what they would claim. For us, almost 3,500 years removed from Deuteronomy, we can not only use this section to get a better understanding of the background of the Bible and of God himself, but we can also still glean wisdom from this section. You see, the next point and the last point I want to give you is this. We are at war as the army of the Lord. We are at war as the army of the Lord. The old children's song is true. You and I may never march in the infantry. We may never ride in the cavalry. We may never shoot the artillery. But we are indeed in the Lord's army. And each day, you and I wage warfare as men and women within the army of saints. You see, as odd as it sounds, when Jesus came to the earth, he came to wage warfare on behalf of the armies of heaven. He was the Goliath for the Philistines. But he didn't do it in the traditional fashion. He came as an individual waging warfare in the new covenant sense. And no longer was he leading an army that fought with spears and swords but it was an invasion all the same. Remember the gospel scene in Luke with the shepherds out in the fields after baby Jesus had been born to Mary and Joseph? Do you guys remember that? We all like to put it up in our house during Christmas and the angels with the pretty wings and the nice flowing robes singing, right? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so Christmas-like. Well, the reality is, is do you remember who it was that was singing? And remember, our God is the Lord of hosts. Hosts means armies of heaven. And suddenly, it says in Luke 2, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. What's the other word for that? Armies. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's a battle cry. Drops it a couple octaves in your mind, doesn't it? No longer is it high, glory to God in the highest, right? It's glory to God in the highest, right? Got the big buff angels all singing it, ready to go to war. I've just ruined Christmas for you, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> the heavenly armies that were standing there singing are the ones that will one day bring the fullness of peace and shalom to this earth. And when challenged to start a revolt in the typical way, in the typical warfare, Jesus made clear that this era, beginning with him, was a different one. His followers would not overcome with power, but with love and service. Remember when Peter, his apostle, drew his sword to fight for Jesus against the guards that were about to arrest him? Remember what Jesus said to him? 
Then Jesus said to him, put your swords back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It's warfare. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus knew that he could pummel the earth instantaneously, but he chose to do it a different way. You see, Jesus did indeed come to conquer, but he did not come to conquer an earthly army. He came to conquer a spiritual one, the spiritual army and systems of those in rebellion against the Father. And when he died on the cross, he was indeed killed on the cross as the atoning sacrifice that takes away our sins. He died in your place and in mine. But there was more than that. He was also the one who raised victorious over the authorities and rulers of the kingdom of darkness. This is one of my favorite scriptures. I've shared it with you a lot lately. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The wording pictures that God himself was leading the rebellious demonic authorities with a hook in their nose as if he had conquered them. And now we, his people, fight not for victory, but from victory. This was one of the main ways that Paul discussed what it was to be a Christian, was the warfare that we are now fighting. Look with me at a couple of places that he tells Timothy, his protege, a pastor that uh, was pastoring in Ephesus. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy 6.12. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says just a few chapters earlier in 1 Timothy 1.18, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may... Wage the good warfare. This wasn't written to Timothy just because he was a pastor. It was because he was a leader. He was a head of the armies. He was a sergeant or a captain, so to speak. And if we get this idea, it will truly free us from much of what weighs us down. I so often find Christians as if they're fighting for victory rather than from it, thinking that they've already lost before the battle's even begun. So how do we do this practically? How do we take what we've read today about being a just army, waging a just war on behalf of Yahweh? How do we take the words of Jesus and of Paul telling us to fight the good fight and wage good warfare? Well, here are a few answers, and I'm going to look to Scripture for these. How do we wage war on behalf of Christ? Number one, write this down. Number one, we prioritize the fight. We prioritize the fight. If any of you have ever done any kind of boxing or martial arts or, well, really any athletic endeavor, if you go into it with your head kind of out in the clouds, how quickly are you going to get destroyed? We talked about it in basketball when I played, is having your game face on. I remember multiple times where I would step into games and I would not be there. I'd be off somewhere else, and all of a sudden I'm getting dunked on. And the reality is, is that you have to prioritize the fight or else you will lose it before it begins. Paul, again, telling Timothy this in his second letter, said this, 
No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I think the majority of us as Christians live our entire lives as if we're on R&R. We're not on base. We're not in our uniform. We're, we're on recreation, man. It's recreation time. But if you took that same mentality and went into the middle of the battle on the front, you would be dead. As Christians, we have to prioritize the fight, realizing that every morning when we get up and put our feet to the ground, we are in essence putting our boots on and we are going to war. Now, does that mean that you have to not have any fun? No, not at all. It means that you recognize that in everything you're doing, your normal work, your normal commute, your normal recreation, your normal interaction with your family, that you are surrounded by this context of warfare, fighting on behalf of Jesus. When you're about to enter into a conflict with someone you love, you're about to enter the battle. When you're about to commit that sin that you have pondered in your head, you're in the midst of the battle. When you're about to go and tell someone about, one, someone about Jesus Christ, you may not think you're in the battle, but the demons who don't want that person to hear, they absolutely are in the midst of the battle. We have to prioritize. Prioritize the fight. Secondly, we need to rejoice in sufferings. This is part of warfare. This is part of how we fight against Satan and the kingdom of darkness. When you rejoice in the midst of suffering, staying allegiant to and trusting Christ, you do massive damage to the kingdom of darkness. This does not mean that we do not weep when the world seems to overtake us. I think often Christians think that um, to rejoice in suffering means you put on your cheesy grin and I just found out that my world is coming down. You know, no, that's not what you do. You weep, but you realize that God has overcome even what that situation can do to you and that eternally it doesn't even matter. If God can destroy sin and death and hell, he can deal with whatever you're dealing with. It's a weird statement, but what's the worst that could happen to us as Christians? We could die, and then we will resurrect, proving that God is victorious. This is what Paul says to Peter in 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That word share is very important there. We must bear the burdens together. It is impossible to go through life and the suffering that we go through without one another. Share in the sufferings. If you're not actively involved in this church or any other church, I would pointedly say it's time to become part of a community. You need the people that surround you. Number three, we wage warfare by taking our thoughts captive. For some reason, our culture has lost the idea that we can do this. Our feelings and our thoughts run us instead of us running our thoughts and feelings. It is true that your limbic system in your brain and the way that you react in fight or flight or, or fawn or faint mode, you are going to have those happen based upon the organic structure of your brain. But you have this thing called your frontal cortex, which is able to think about your emotions, think about the thoughts that come across your brain. So many Christians beat themselves up because they have this fleeting thought about lust or fleeting thought about anger. That's not disobedience. That's called temptation. What do you do then is obedience or disobedience. If you have the fleeting thought of lust, then you control that thought. You take it to the Lord and you say, Lord, I want nothing to do with this. You take your thoughts captive. And in doing so, we fight against the father of lies, Satan himself, who pumps lies into our head and uses our own inner critic to try and tell us that we are not sons of the Most High God. And so Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Amen? You can't help how you feel or how you think. You can definitely help how you think about how you feel and how you think. And that's the reality of what it is to walk with Christ. For these things, you can do simple, simple acts. For prioritizing the fight, write yourself a war cry and stick it to your mirror as you get ready in the morning. Write yourself a prayer about the Lord helping you in the midst of the fight. For taking your thoughts captive, take a journal and write down your automatic thoughts on one side of the piece of paper and on the other side, write down scripture that actually tells you the truth. Well, number four, we can pray and learn scripture. This is another way of waging warfare. Pray and learn scripture. These are two offensive weapons we are given and we must learn to wield them by practicing them daily. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. One of the biggest ways that you wage warfare against the kingdom of darkness is by taking the membership directory that you have. If you don't have one, you can get one at the back table and you can read and pray for the people in this church. And by doing that, you are throwing daggers in the heart of darkness praying for the people that surround you. Number five, you can practice acts of restorative justice. Practicing acts of justice in which we care for people and that where we bring the level playing field to bear for people who are oppressed and vulnerable. Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, he uses an interesting phrase. He calls it weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. It's here in 2 Corinthians 6, 6 through 7. Weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Paul references these actions as weapons which we do, with which we do harm against the kingdom of darkness. When you act to bring righteousness to bear in a situation where it is unjust, you are waging warfare against the kingdom of darkness. And lastly, but most importantly, love. love. Jesus said this. He said, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you're a Democrat, do you pray for the Republicans? If you're a Republican, do you pray for the Democrats? If you hate Donald Trump, do you pray for him? If you hate Pelosi, do you pray for her? Do you pray for the Iranians and for the North Koreans and for the Iraqis and the Taliban? Do you pray for the person in this body that you're angry with right now? Do you pray for your spouse who made you angry yesterday? In all these ways, we love our enemies. And if we love our enemies that well, just think about how much love we should be pouring out towards one another as brothers and sisters. You see, to love will cause the world to stand up and take notice. And rather than hating our enemies, we pray for them. We speak to them in truth. We serve them, desiring them to be one with Christ. And if this is how we are to love our enemies, really, when they see how we love one another, that will make the biggest impact. 
And one day, on a day only the Father knows, Christ will return for those of us that have been faithfully waging warfare on his behalf. And he will establish his kingdom and he will destroy the enemies of heaven and reign in righteousness for eternity. Turn with me to Revelation 9, the last place I'll turn you, or sorry, 19, Revelation 19. And take a look at verse 11 and we'll finish here. You guys are probably in... Uh, verse whiplash with the number of verses I gave you today, but that's okay. Go back and study them throughout the week. I've given you a lot of meat here to take and study throughout the week. And it's all throughout the Word so that you get an understanding of the narrative of Scripture. But in the ancient Near East, powerful kings were pictured as riding on horses at the head of their armies about to make war. It was a picture that looked kind of like this. If you look up at the screen... Uh, this was the, uh, I believe, the Assyrian uh, king at the head of his army waging warfare. And John, the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, in his powerful vision, he declares something similar. Take a look at verse 11 of chapter 19 in Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I unfortunately do not have time to break down Revelation for you, but it's what's called apocalyptic literature. And it is speaking of something that is both in the future and here today. In the future, Christ will return, and he will return to fully establish his kingdom that he has already inaugurated. But as of today, we are just as much in the midst of warfare as the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him, serving him, and waging warfare on his behalf. This is not a picture that is only going to happen in the future. This is a picture that happens today in the spiritual sense. And whether we will be alive or will have gone to the grave before that day that Jesus returns, we do not know. But what we do know is that it has been promised. And until then, we need to be about the work of the Lord, fighting for all that will reflect the Lord to a world that so badly needs him. If you do not know Jesus today, today is the day to accept his, accept his invitation to step into his kingdom. If you want to do that, I'd love to talk with you after service. But if you are a believer in Christ, you've been walking with him, you're part of his kingdom. If you already know him, today I want to give you the command and the war cry to wage the good warfare in his name each and every day and to do so in a manner that reflects who he is to a world that so badly needs to know him. Church, can we be a church that wages the good warfare? We can only be that if each individual soldier decides to sign up for the fight. So let's be that church and let, let's wage the good warfare on behalf of our Lord.